coming up next on the Wetfly Swing Podcast. A real strong, you know, mutual opinion of just about everyone here is that we've got these access to tremendous public waters and lands, and it's been, everyone has come together with that in my lifetime in Montana. As we've seen an influx of, you know, wealthier landowners, the tide may be turning. And fortunately, we do have that law in the books now. It might be, it would have been more difficult to implement nowadays. But uh, that's something that's just always been the attitude in Montana. And, you know, it's the reason that a lot of people are here. And it's, you know, uh, one of the great things we offer. That was Sean Jezanka providing a behind-the-scenes look at Montana's public access law. The Big Hole, the Beaverhead, and Big Browns today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Want to share a big announcement we have right now. We are looking for a new account manager position with the uh, Wet Fly Swing podcast right here. We're looking for somebody who's interested in uh, digging into the good stuff we have going and engaging all the community here. So if you are interested or know somebody who might be interested and have some of those skills, you can reach out to me, Dave, at wetflyswing.com. And just let me know you're interested in that account manager role. You can also head directly right now to wetflyswing.com slash manager. Manager will get you there. You can see the full scoop on that uh, on that job. And you can actually apply right there, right there on that page. And check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, who is putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. When Ethan designs your net, it's his hope and goal to help you form lasting memories every time you're on the water. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly right now to get started. That's S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Stonefly online. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthook, who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos, easy to follow guides, their fly shop quality flies are hand tied and inspected before being packed in these careful, durable packs. And I can tell you, these are sweet little fly boxes. Check them out right now. Uh, Drift Hook, wetflyswing.com slash D R I F T H O O K. Drift Hook. Sean Jazanka takes us into Western Montana and frontier anglers. We dig into a few of the most well-known rivers in Montana and talk about how we fish them. And of course, I'm speaking of the Beaverhead and the Big Hole on top of some other ones that are out there. We break down some of the big hatches that you can be expecting if you're going to this area in the coming year. And uh, we also find out where Sean is heading, heading out this winter. So this is a good background on frontier anglers and everything they have going there. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Here we go. Sean Jazanka from FrontierAnglers.com. How's it going, Sean? Doing well, Dave. How are you this morning? Good, good. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking a little time today to dig into some on Montana. We've uh, you know, obviously covered a lot of uh, episodes around in and out of Montana. Um, and I know southwestern Montana, I spent some time out there fishing, so I'm interested to dig back into a little bit on this. So we're going to talk about you know, your history here uh, with Frontier Anglers, kind of the guiding program, dig into some fishing to help people that might be going to that area uh, this year. But uh, before we get there, take us back to fly fishing. I'd like to start off at the start quickly. Tell us how you first got into fly fishing. Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up on, on the Blackfoot River outside of Missoula, Montana as a kid. In fact, 
uh, as I became old enough, I would just take my bike across an old trestle uh, just on the lower end of the Blackfoot and spend almost every afternoon and day of the summer fishing, as well as outings with my grandfather to Rock Creek and other area rivers. Uh, I, I guess I ended up in this part of the state. I had family here as well. So I was real fortunate to be immersed in it as a, as a pretty young kid. Mm. So, yeah, so you've been out there for a long time. And and so Rock Creek, um, we got the Blackfoot. Uh, there's a number of rivers in that area. Uh, we're going to talk about, just give us a, a primer on what is southwestern Montana. You know, how much area, how far east does that go? What's the, I mean, just roughly. You know, southwest Montana, I think you could throw the Madison River in as well. We fished that a little bit, but primarily we're fishing the Jefferson River and its tributaries, the Beaverhead and the Big Hole Rivers is where we spend the most of, most of our time and our kind of, I guess, the flagship Blue, Rub, Blue Ribbon Rivers in this portion of the state. Uh, you can throw the Ruby in there as well, but uh, I would define, for us, defining southwest Montana would be the Jefferson River drainage and primarily the Beaverhead and Big Hole. Okay, perfect. So that's that helps us. So, and then remind uh, everybody who's listening that doesn't know there. So, like Rock Creek, what does that flow into? Rock Creek comes into the Clark Fork about 20 miles to the west of Missoula. It's over the divide from us. So, uh, we don't really, I guess you could throw the Bitterroot is technically in southwest Montana, but they're on the, they're on the other side of the divide from us. You know, we're the, the drainage I'm talking about, and primarily we service at Frontier Anglers, we're in the uppermost headwaters of the Missouri River drainage. In fact, the uppermost portion of the Missouri River can be found in the Centennial Valley south of Dillon. Nice. Uh, I want to dig into, for those people that are going to want to fish that area, part of Montana, you're out of Dillon. Frontier Anglers is a big uh, a big company. I mean, you guys have been doing some good stuff over there because your day is popping around all over the place. Um and I want to talk about your guide program, but uh, the Beaverhead is one of the rivers I want to dig into here. So, so describe it's a it's a tailwater. Take us to the Beaverhead and talk about how it's a little bit different, maybe than some of the other rivers, or you know maybe what you really love about it. Sure, Dave. the uh, The Beaverhead, the the start of Beaverhead is where the outflow of Clark Canyon Reservoir south of Dillon, about twenty miles. Uh, the Beaverhead would be on the smaller side of floatable rivers out west. Uh, it's just a very fertile fishery, and and when we get into a cycle of good water with good winter flows, I really haven't seen another river that produces the abundance and size of fish out west as the Beaverhead. Uh, we have we have some fluctuations here and there with flows, and the fishery will kind of rise and fall a little bit. But when things are clicking, it's uh, one of the best out there. Yes, and, and it's definitely well-known. I haven't fished it. I've been out in that area, but uh, that's one on the bucket list still, you know. Uh, what, what is the time-wise? Is it kind of normal thing as soon as the winter kind of kicks off and comes out into the early kind of late spring, summer is when things start heating up there? Yeah, portions of the river uh, from seven miles below the dam at, a, at an access called Pipe Organ Bridge downstream uh, is open year-round. The upper seven miles of the river is actually closed until the third Saturday in May. Uh, what that does is protect some spawning rainbows. Uh, we also see flows start to rise as irrigation demands, uh, you know, uh, happen in the month of May. And so our, it's a big day for us the third Saturday in May when that upper portion of the river opens. Right, right. And then you guys are going strong and then, and you're going strong and through uh, like, uh, well, as we're recording this, we're kind of into November. Uh, how does that look for the season? When does it kind of wrap up for you? We're kind of there already. We did our last guide trips uh, last weekend and uh, we've got winters here in Montana. It was 16 degrees this morning. So not a lot of folks going on float trips anymore for the rest of the season. Uh, we'll kick back off again, probably usually in March of next year. Nice. 
And uh, before we jump into on some of the fishing, I just want to take us back again to the Frontier Anglers because that is uh, a topic that, and, a, and a name that uh, is around, you know, you hear about a lot. Uh, so you came to own this thing in 2019. Um, and before that, take us there. So did you have a fly shop even before this? And what were you doing before, you know, before you actually purchased uh, Frontier Anglers? Prior to purchasing uh, Frontier Anglers in, uh, in January 2019, I had I had been a, a small outfitter, basically operating out of my house here in Southwest Montana, since 2000. Uh, I spent the you know started in as, at the early stages. I started in as a guide in Southwest Montana in 1990. Oh, 1990, yeah. What was that like? So uh, when you're starting in 1990, who were you with, or back then, or were just kind of doing your own thing? I actually worked for a number of people at that time. I spent uh, most of the 90s, I worked for a lodge near Twin Bridges, just north of Dillon, uh, called Crane Meadow Lodge. And uh, uh, fished, you know, there's an abundance of water. We fished not only the Beaverhead, but the Big Hole, the Jefferson, the Ruby, the Madison. Uh, just uh, one of the reasons I'm here is there's just a, like, a, I think there's 225 miles of floatable water within an hour and a half of here. Wow. Wow, that's huge. And and what is the, and you guys are floating this, is it mainly like uh, rafts or boats or a mix? Yeah, you know, we generally are fishing out of, you know, most of the people in this part of the Montana are running some type of skiff boat. Uh, we deal tend to deal more with lower water than higher water. Uh, we even, we put rafts in play later in the summer as, as the water falls, but, uh, you know, just a, a variety of boats and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, a, a good combination of both wade and float fishing. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a it's a good mix. So, okay, and then Frontier Anglers. I mean, you probably saw that. I mean, you purchased it in 2019, but uh, I'm sure you saw them along the way. Who? What was the history there? Who was the original? Do you know when that uh, actually started up? The original owner? Yeah, uh, Tim Tollett, who's a friend of mine, uh, originally opened uh, Frontier Anglers in 1980. Uh, and Tim, uh, was a friend of mine, one of the first people I met when I moved to Southwest Montana from Missoula. And so I'd been a customer and, uh, you know, there for quite some time. And I joke with my, my customers now that if you'd have told me 25 years ago, I would own frontier anglers, I would have told you you're crazy, but here we are and things are going well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys, I mean, that, that explains it part of it, right? Obviously since 1980, that's a long, that's a business that's been going a while, and, uh, and you guys now focus on that area. Are you also doing some other programs? Uh, are you still going outside of that kind of like doing the hosted stuff or any of that sort of thing, travel? We are. Yeah. We're doing some hosted trips to Belize, uh, the Bahamas. Uh, you know, we, I hope to get back to some of my roots in Argentina, but, mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic kind of put a stop to destination travel there for a couple of years, but, uh, we're jumping back in and hoping to do more and more as the year as each year. Perfect. Well, let's jump into the beaverhead. You know, again, I would love to jump into all these rivers you guys fish, but we're probably going to have limited time here. So um, so let's just start with the beaverhead. This is one that's probably one of the most well-known rivers out there. It's this amazing tailwater. It's got big fish. You know, as, if people are planning for this trip, is there certain times, are there certain times kind of during the year, the summer when they should focus, or is it just good starting whenever the high water comes down until this time? Well, there, there's not a runoff on the Beaverhead as a tailwater. Uh, it's actually almost the reverse of, of a Freestone River. Um, once we start to get our better flows, that's when our best fishing is. Uh, typically, you know, the, so the upper river opens the third Saturday in May, and we try to steer our, our clients to come somewhere between the third Saturday in May uh, out through the month of August. Uh, you know, flows can decline again after Labor Day, but it's uh, a short but sweet season compared to some fisheries, but uh, it's pretty spectacular. 
Wow. So that is, yeah. So you got the short season and it's obviously Montana. So you get some weather there. And then during the off season. So now as you're wrapping things up, are you just kind of cleaning things up and then getting ready to do some hosted travel? Or how do you keep yourself busy throughout the rest of the year uh, out there? You know, we're taking bookings now every day. We uh, we do have an online store. Yeah, we're organizing our destination trips, uh, you know, just the things you don't have time to do during the heat of the season. Right. And I'm not even, I, you know, obviously I, I've heard about Frontier. I don't even know, is there, as far as the, the store, uh, is there a, a brick and mortar, like one store, multiple stores? Is that a program you guys have? Yes, we do. We have a, we have a retail, our retail location is in Dillon. It's a, you know, one of the main locations in town. If you get off of the uh, interstate 15 in Dillon, we're sitting right there. Uh, pretty hard to miss us actually. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You're of course you got the thing. It's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of changes, you know, with the online, you probably see this as well. You know, Frontier has made a great name for them. You know, you guys for yourselves, it's, it's big. You've been out there a long time. I was talking to uh, Joe Samella uh, recently from the Bent podcast, you know, the meat eater crew, we had him on and it kind of different subject. He's talking about field and stream, how field and stream was this, uh, you know, they were great. The, the magazine, right. They still are out there, but they don't do a print magazine anymore. And I didn't realize, and he was kind of disappointed about that. But I kind of think of this as an analogy with all the fly shops, although fly shops aren't necessarily leaving, right, and going online. But you do see a lot of online fly shops. What, what's your take on, since you've been in it a little while, um, well, I guess you've been you've owned it since 2019, but what's your take on changes in the fly shop? Have you seen a lot of changes, or do you think that's that's probably not going away? You know, I think there's always going to be a need for fly shops. People arrive in the area, and one of the things that we sell primarily, I believe, is service. People walk mm-hmm. in, they may have some, some, you know, fishing knowledge, but they need to be pointed in the right direction, the right flies. You know, we're full service from everything from, we will shuttle folks on the river. Uh, you know, we provide local information, some, possibly even in some smaller waters that people have never heard of before. Uh, without a doubt, you know, with the influx of, you know, primarily online fly shops, their retail is not probably what it was, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, however, you know, we're, we're, it's remaining profitable and uh, we're just, we'll keep going from there. Yep. Obviously no. And the shops are the, I mean, I think the fly shops are the heart, you know, they're still, they probably always will be, you know, the, the, basically the backbone, the heart of fly fishing, which is amazing. So this is, this is great. So, well, let's keep this uh, beaverhead going, get back into this. So if somebody was calling you and they're thinking, Hey, I want to do a trip next, say next summer, and they're kind of planning this and they're saying, Hey, okay. I, you know, maybe I have a month in July or uh, some time in July to go out there. Uh, what would you tell them if they were, you know, getting ready to plan this? Is it uh, walk and wade? Is that doable DIY, or is it definitely better to get a guide? What's your take there? There's plenty of access on the Beaverhead. Um, the Beaverhead, I would say, because of the nature of it, it's a smaller, kind of faster, narrow willow-lined river. And most of the time, when someone, even if they're a, a really, you know, competent fisherman and they launch a boat in the Beaverhead, things are happening so quickly that you know you come around a bend, and unless you have a plan about where you're going to cast before you get there, you're kind of behind a little bit in your reactions. And so, most people on their initial outing on the Beaverhead don't have a tremendous amount of success. So, I would encourage them to learn the river to hire a guide. Um, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge as far as some of our terminal tackle and the type of structure and stuff you would want to fish in the river that might be a little bit different than most rivers that people fish. 
Yeah, no, it's a great point. So, and like always, you know, get a, a guide for at least, you know, a day or, you know what I mean? Whatever you can do, get somebody because then that's going to save you a bunch of hard, a uh, bunch of issues probably. I can imagine throwing in a drift boat, first time on a river and all of a sudden it's, it's floating by, you're probably missing a lot of water, you know, missing some opportunities. So, so good. So basically you guys do the skiffs and those skiffs are pretty amazing. we we did a season, a series on like drift boats a while back. So we kind of have a take on some of those skiffs, which are, you know, low sided, uh, pretty amazing. What's the, uh, well, just tell me that, do you guys use a mixture of boats out there or do you have one manufacturer you guys like to use? No, there's a variety of them. You know, I'm mean, clack of craft, uh, hide. I personally run an adipose flow skiff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're all great boats. Uh, they work well. People can get in and out easily. The the, the nature of the beaverhead being a smaller river, uh, a stand-up boat puts you just too close to them, in my opinion. And you'll oftentimes run into pods of rising fish, and the distance between you and them is not much. And if you're standing, you're just going to spook more fish. Oh, gotcha. So you guys are – so you're literally just floating, sitting the whole day, kind of just being stealthy. Yes, yeah, gotcha. Okay, so what would that look like? So as you're preparing for somebody's preparing, they're tying, they're gonna be tied their flies, you know, over the winter, getting prepared. What sort of flies should they be uh, getting ready for if they're thinking, you know, some of the dry, some of the hatches coming? You know, the the primary hatches when pe- on the beaverhead, uh, the big one for us are PMDs, which you know they begin to hatch in the latter part of June and will continue on even through August and in some years early September. Uh, some of the PMDs on the beaverhead will be a little bigger than people are used to encountering. They'll start out as an honest 14 and then slowly get a little smaller to where they're a 16 and possibly even an 18 by August. Uh, coinciding with them in the afternoons, it works out well as we have some pretty tremendous yellow sally hatches as well. Mm, nice. Yeah, yellow sally. So, and do you guys get much of a, uh, is there like a stonefly action, all that? There are a few goldens that come out on the beaverhead. Like most tailwaters, they're not big. Uh, you know, we're not big, you know, we don't have salmon flies there, but we do have a little golden hatch that occurs oh, for roughly five, six days in the latter part of June to early July, uh, which can provide some good big dry fly fishing. Okay. And what for you, like, is there like, what gets you fired up about fishing the beaverhead? Is there a specific thing or do you just kind of like, like it all in any time of the year? Yeah. You know, uh, the one thing that we all look forward to after a summer of, you know, running a lot of nymph rigs is typically around the 20th of August, we get a massive hatch of crane flies, which most people will see one here or there on their local waterway flying. They look like a giant mosquito. Fortunately, they don't bite. They can be up to two inches long. The beaver head gets a bumper hatch of those. And so these normally snooty tailwater fish that are eating size 18 stuff in August We'll all of a sudden kind of just throw caution to the wind and eat big dries for a period of a week to 10 days in the last part of August. Oh, wow. So that's pretty cool. What is the, what's the fly pattern? What's the dry fly you'd be using for that? There are some specific patterns that they're kind of, because there's not a lot of crane, crane fly fishing out there, there's not a lot of uh, patterns available. We fish, I fish tie one myself. That's somewhat of a Chernobyl type pattern. Uh, there yeah. are, there are, uh, you know, a, a handful of commercial patterns available, but um, really it's kind of a niche thing that is unique to the beaverhead. Okay, good. Yeah, and I haven't ever fished. I mean, obviously crane flies are everywhere, but yeah, I've never fished the crane fly hatch. That's really cool. Um, and again, same thing, though. Folks will be calling you up and we'll, they'll get that pattern from you. Do you guys do, um, are you doing any like the YouTube stuff or any tying or anything out there on online? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. We've done a little bit of that. We're going to hope to expand on that a lot more. Uh, COVID kind of uh, destroyed some plans to have some local tying classes and things like that. But uh, we certainly, uh, certainly will, you know, hope to get more into that media side of things as well. Okay. 
And Dylan, I, I'm not even sure if I've even been through Dylan, but uh, are there other, uh, so you guys are there, one of the big fly shops, are there other shops uh, in and around kind of Dylan in that area? Yes, we've got one other good-sized shop in town, uh, friends of mine, uh, Anderson and Platt, and then we've got uh, several lodges in the area as well as a few independent outfitters. Oh, yeah, right, right. And what are the, uh, so lo- what, what's one of the lodges, just so we're, we're, and these are lodges where you could actually go and literally be on, is it, uh, is it the Beaverhead, or what river would these be? There are, there are no lodges actually located on the Beaverhead, but we, there are a couple north of us about a half hour in the Ruby Valley, which fish, you know, not only the Beaverhead, but some other rivers in the area, just like we do. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So it's like, and, and lakes, you know, that obviously lakes are out there too. Is that, is that a big focus for you guys? Yeah, one of the big draws and the reason that I really have, have settled in this corner of Montana is there's virtually every type of fishery you would hope to encounter. We have spring creeks, stillwaters, freestones, tailwaters, mountain streams. Uh, if you went to a different body of water or section every day of the summer, I don't think you would you know, cross paths in the same place twice. Today's episode is sponsored by Zag.fish who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying products and services. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people, both in the U.S. and abroad. They've got uh, everything covered. We've had a recent episode on with uh, John Grosta, who talked about uh, some of the great products they have with the the fishing he does in Florida, uh, with the Fairflies brushes. They've got the 5D brushes and their uh, fly fur which is pretty amazing. Tons of people are loving this stuff for its durability and the speed that allows you to tie flies. John talked about that on the podcast. uh, And he said that just uh, basically it's going to add on at least 15 to 20 minutes to uh, each fly you tie if you're not using these brushes. Zag also has uh, Wasatch custom angling tools in their satchel with over 50 uh, custom heirloom tools that go along with your materials. So they are a true do-it-yourself company, and you got to check out zag.fish right now. If you want to, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash zag, and you can get 20% off your first order by clicking through that link. Let them know you heard uh, of them through this podcast, and you'll get that 20% discount right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash zag, Z-A-G. Okay, back to the show. Well, let, let's keep on the beaverhead uh, on that line again. So we got the we got the crane, uh, the crane fly. We got that hatch going on. But it sounds like you guys are doing some nymphing. I mean, what is? Let, let's go into that a little bit because that's obviously a hot topic. What's maybe describe your nymphing setup? Are you doing the same, a similar thing throughout the year? What's that look like? You know, the bottom of the river is more of a of a smaller cobble type bottom as opposed to the large bowling ball sized rocks you'll find in most streams. So somewhere around 15 years ago, we started to rig up our terminal tackle with what we would call a drop shot rig where your weight is actually on the bottom. And then your two flies are located anywhere from 10 inches to two feet above that weight on tags off of your leader. Uh, Your leader is primarily just going to all be about two X tippet. And what this does is uh, it allows your flies to stay down in the zone where all these fish are in the beaver head. Um, And as you drift along, one minute you're fishing through an 18 inch deep riffle, which will suddenly drop off of a shelf into a six foot deep runner pool. Uh, this rig allows your flies to stay in contact and down the zone right where the fish are the entire time. It's extremely effective and uh, it works on some other tailwater fisheries as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're going down in the boat. So typically are you, would you be rowing and you have two clients on the boat? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You got somebody in the front and somebody in the back. So as you're doing that, you would just have them out. And is this an indicator rig? So would there be some type of a indicator on the rig? Yeah, there I mean, there would be an indicator uh, approximately six feet above the top fly. Uh, the thing that strikes people as odd when they first fish with this setup is as you're drifting down the river or you're wade fishing a hole, you'll see your indicator actually just do a bunch of micro ticks as that. So you're in contact with the bottom and the weight that's on the bottom. Uh, one of the things that makes it a good rig as well is in, in a standard inline nymphing rig where people, people typically put the weight above two flies, uh, tailwater fish being, you know, fairly educated, they're pulling directly against the indicator. So as soon as there's any kind of resistance on the fly, it's immediately noticeable at the indicator. Oh, right. Yeah. Because there's no, yeah. The, the other way having the weight in the middle, it's, uh, you've, that's affecting it. But with this, yeah, when they, when they even touch it, you're seeing that little, every little thing. Exactly. Do you ever see that? I mean, it's moving all the time or do you get into slower areas where you can actually like slow the thing down quite a bit? Uh, yes, you certainly can. And, and one of the great things about the beaverhead, which I think is unique to a lot of other trout streams as well, is, is people who float it for the first time are just in awe as they're floating down the river and they look over the side at all the fish they're passing and seeing. <laughs> and uh, there's a tremendous number of opportunities to get out of the boat and sight fish to, to large fish as well. Uh, there's just about any hole on the river you can pull over and immediately locate and see fish and then begin fishing to them. Oh, cool. So you're floating down. So you know, these areas where you can actually get out. And then, and then when you get out, when you're sight fishing, are you talking sight fishing more like with uh, dries and things like that? Yeah, they're, they're, they're the dry fly opportunities. You, you might also find fish that you can see in 18 inches of water that are nymphing. And you may have to make some, you know, a dry dropper rig, even a, a specific shallow water nymphing rig. Uh, certainly fish when they're coming up, you know, noted those, you know, we're throwing dries at them, but it's just a, a real unique opportunity to see uh, large fish like that and be able to sight fish to them. It's one of the main draws of the river. Mm, man. And like you said, these are fish that are, um, I mean, 20 inches is not uncommon to get like 20 inch brown. Yeah. 20 inches aren't uncommon at all. I mean, you, you may not actually hook them, but it's not uncommon to sight fish to fish that are 22 to 24 inches. The 22, 24. And then, and then you have some rainbows that are, there's some rainbows that are decent size as well. Yeah. The rainbows tend to be on the, on the larger side, size actually. In fact, I would think conservatively, they would be run 18 to 19 inches in the upper portion of the river. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you guys, so you got monster rainbows and monster browns and, and then throughout the year. So you're doing the nymphing. It sounds like probably, I mean, if you have somebody new that hasn't done this before, uh, maybe they're even kind of newer to fly fishing. Is this something pretty easy to get them going? Are they doing much casting? Because I'd imagine you got weight. That's not the easiest thing to cast either, right? Yeah, we've kind of refined it to where, you know, using, you know, uh, you know, rods we prefer or something around like a nine and a half foot six weight. Um, you know, a lot of times you're not actually aerializing the cast with a, with a standard uh, cast. And, you know, people just roll cast kind of quartering back out of the boat. Uh, as well as, you know, when you're, when you're out weed fishing, you know, kind of allow it to go downstream, allow the weight to load with the current and then swing it back up. Uh, and that's the most productive way to really nip any tailwater. Uh, and it works extremely well in the beaverhead. Okay. And then, so you got the nipping, are you guys also doing, so if you have a hatch, you're hitting that, are you also doing any like, uh, like streamers, anything like that? Is that a popular thing in the fishery? Yes, it is. We had actually real good streamer fishing this last season. And so, uh, you know, depending upon, you know, a lot of times the way a day will play out is you've had a great day of fishing. Okay. Let's try to take, you know, catch the fish on our turns. And if you end up with some clouds, you throw a streamer or you can throw in a tractor dry and 
uh, get a few more, you know, fish on some great takes and, uh, you know, just kind of icing on the cake at the end of a good day. <laughs> this is great. All right. So, so this is the beaverhead. I mean, this is one definitely you want to hit. It sounds like it's, it's kind of a little smaller and faster. You got to have a boat because of the willows. So definitely uh, checking in with you guys on, on a guide would be good. What about the other river? We mentioned, uh, so the big hole, that's another big name. Um, talking about the big hole, how is the big hole different from the beaverhead? The Big Hole is a classic Western freestone river. You know, when once the snowmelt gone, flows tend to recede. Uh, it, but it also, you know, what it has that's synonymous with big Western rivers, it's got an amazing salmon fly hatch. Everybody wants to hit the salmon fly hatch. Uh, if we knew exactly what day that was going to be, we could probably <laughs> double our rates and we'll be glad to pay it. Uh, but it, it has salmon flies. It has other several other species of stone flies, mayflies, caddis, uh, also sits in some of the most beautiful scenery probably in the Western United States. So it and the beaverhead complement each other really well. One is, you know, the finesse tail water and the other is, uh, is this beautiful freestone. And oftentimes people who fish a multitude of days in the summer will do want to do a couple of days here and a couple of days there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that would be maybe even the better thing to do if they have somebody has maybe a few days or even a week to come in and say, Hey, we're going to hit the beaverhead uh, here for a couple of days, head over to the big hole. And, and what is the sand fly? So the, the range, it's, it is always tough to, you know, say it's this range, but is it, is it more of a, more of a June thing out there? Yeah, they tend to come off a little earlier than uh, some of the rivers in Montana. We typically start looking for salmon flies anywhere around the 12th of June, and they could be around anywhere to, you know, the 20th, the 22nd of June as well. But usually during that 10-day window is primarily when it happens. Yeah. And, and what's your, when they're hot, when they're on the surface, uh, what is your, what's the fly you usually throw on there? You know, I've gone to uh, water walkers a lot lately in the, the last couple of years. Uh, also, you know, just standard chubby Chernobyls. Uh, yeah. When they're out and the fish are on them, uh, it's pretty easy going. Uh, big hole fish tend to, when they want to eat on top, they tend to be pretty voracious. When they don't, they can be hard to bring up. But when it's on, it's as good as anywhere. Okay. And, and I'll put a, the water walker. We'll see if we can track down the, some either maybe a video of, of that fly if there's a tying video. Is that one of your own or is that something uh, that's pretty common out there? No, it's not. Actually, it's uh, the water docker or the water walker, I believe, is a Will Dorn fly out of Jackson Hole and uh, become popular around the West. I think the reason that it, that it, it has gained in popularity is, is these fish get more pressure. It rides really, really low. It's not high profiled like, let's say, a chubby Chernobyl where I think fish are starting to see those big, white, fluffy wings. Uh, they certainly will eat them when they're, when they're being aggressive. But the water walker, I fish them quite often. I'll fish a, a two-fly rig, and I'll have the bigger, more visible chubby Chernobyl at the end and then a, maybe a less visible, more flush-floating pattern on, you know, near the angler up the leader. Uh, and so you're kind of covering you know, a bigger swath along the bank as well with that two-fly rig. Oh, good. Yeah. So then that is a nice one. So you can cover a little bit of both. And then, and out there, same thing. I mean, you guys, if, if nymphing is that is pretty common throughout the year uh, on, on the big hole as well. Yeah, we do. There's certainly most, there are days, you know, in bright sunny days in July where you'll end up doing some nymphing, but the big draw for us on the big hole is certainly, you know, dry fly fishing, dry dropper fishing, as well as some just tremendous streamer fishing from early in the season, April and May and early June can be some of the best out West. Gotcha. Okay. And so let's, let's keep going around this now that we're on, on the track. So we got the beaverhead and you mentioned a few of these at the start, the big hole, uh, the Ruby is another one. What's the, uh, take us to the Ruby a little bit. How is that one? Um, you know, are you kind of covering all these throughout the whole summer? 
Yeah, the Ruby actually is is a tremendous amount of the Ruby River is difficult to access. Uh, most of the public access on the river is in the upper eight miles from the dam near the small town of Alder, Montana. Uh, as you go downstream towards Twin Bridges, where the Ruby combines with the Beaverhead at that point, uh, it's not very good public access at all. You know, using the Montana Stream Access Law, you mm. can certainly jump off of a county road bridge as long as you stay within the high water marks. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to access in lower reaches, uh, the some near the dam. And it's essentially just a smaller version of the Beaverhead is what it is. Both, you know, the okay. character of the water and the hatches and everything. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And so, so there's three. And then let's round this off. What are the other words? Just remind us again, the rivers you guys cover uh, th during the year. So the, the, the combination of the Ruby, the Beaverhead and the Big Hole is the Jefferson River. Uh, the Ruby comes into the Beaverhead a couple miles above its confluence with the Big Hole forming the Jefferson uh, near the town of Twin Bridges, Montana, which is about 25 miles north of us. Uh, the Jefferson tends to be a little bit of a seasonal river. Uh, it can you know, suffer some from uh, water drawdown in late summer. Temperatures can warm. But if, you, if conditions are right on the Jefferson, it's a tremendous fishery as well with some of the hardest pulling rainbows that I've really seen anywhere in Montana. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, good. So then that is the throughout the year i mean that's those are the three that, that are your big ones and then in the jefferson basin um you mentioned uh the uh the stream the montana access uh which is really an interesting i guess law that's that you guys have in montana it's pretty unique Does, do you know much about that i mean has that always been there um you know has that because that seems pretty amazing for people that are anglers out there yeah, it, it was in 1974 uh, is when Montana first game, you know, the, the stream access law was implemented. And it allows anglers, uh, if they can access a river at a county road bridge, a fishing access uh, or a variety of other ways where there's a, a public easement, you're allowed to float, wade and move up and down the river within what's called the ordinary high water marks, which are usually pretty easily definable. Um, you know, to, to someone with a trained eye. Uh, and it, it really is probably, it, it liberalized stream access, access out West. And I think other states have, some have followed suit. I know there's some stuff going on in Utah trying to transition that way, but having lived with it my entire life, I can't imagine life without it, uh, such as, you know, conditions that exist in Wyoming or Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the that's the amazing thing is that you've only known that at least in your you know your home state. But I mean, there's a lot of states that would be like, wow, that would be a really cool thing to have. Why, why do you think, uh, you know, why, why do you think they have it and a lot of states don't? Why, why do you have any idea? Is that just? I mean, obviously Montana is one of the fishing meccas. Maybe that's what it comes down to. I think public land access in general. Uh, we might argue about other things in Montana, but that's always been. A, a real strong, you know, mutual opinion of just about everyone here is that we've got these tr access to tremendous public waters and lands. And it's been, everyone has come together with that in my lifetime in Montana. And we're seeing, as we've seen an influx of, you know, wealthier landowners, the, the tide may be turning. And fortunately we do have that law in the books now. It might be, it would have been more difficult to implement nowadays, but uh, that's something that's just always been the attitude in Montana. And, you know, it's the reason that a lot of people are here and it's, you know, uh, one of the great things we offer. Yeah, that is really cool. What's uh, so Dylan, let's just keep on the, on a little bit of the track of the, the background of the geography and stuff. So Dylan, um, I mean, how has that changed? Have you been there a long time? Have you seen some pretty uh, big changes over the years there as far as population or other things? 
You know, Dylan, we're just far enough out of the way. Uh, we're about an hour from the nearest airport in Butte. We really haven't seen the population influx that other portions of Montana, some of the bigger cities are getting right now. Somewhat shocking to go to Missoula and Bozeman and watch the continued growth. We're getting a little bit in Dillon, but it's not that much different than the town that I first you know, started spending a lot of time in 30 years ago. Yeah. So that, that's cool, too. So you have this town that hasn't changed very much over the years. And what, what is the just roughly populate? What's the size of the town? Uh, the city of Dillon's about 6,000, give or take a little bit. Uh, we There's a small university here, Western Montana University, and oh, yeah. it has about 2,000 yeah, yeah. students. It provides a kind of, you know, it really makes the town having that small college in town and, the, you know, the atmosphere, it really makes it a nice place to live. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. Western Montana. And then what's the uh, what's the name of the Western Montana? They're, uh, they're, uh, what's their mascot? They're the Bulldogs. Oh, the Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah, they're right. So they're not in the... Uh, what, yeah, they're not in like uh, Division One, or are, are they? Who, who yeah, are they? they're uh, NAIA Division Three. Yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they compete in uh, what's called the Frontier Conference, which are the smaller schools in Montana as well as a. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Nice, nice. Good. Well, I love taking these tangents to get a little, a uh, little background here. So let's bring it back into, uh, you know, back into the, uh, the shop. And we were talking about a couple of the different rivers there. So again, somebody's putting together a trip out there. What's that look like as far as places to stay? Is there lots of camping? Is that pretty much, could you do uh, are there any like river float trips on any of this stuff? Or is it more like they're, you know, you're camping somewhere else and then day fishing? You know, there's a, as far as lodging, uh, it, there's the whole, revolution has really even hit Dillon, Montana, where I think about five years ago, there were six VRBOs and I think we're upwards of 40 now. It's hard to even keep track of them all. Uh, We have folks who even have cabins. We have a number of motels and hotels. Uh, You know, there's certainly a lot of camping opportunities within the area as well. So there, okay. So there's lots of opportunities and, and the, uh, the camp, and it, there's a cup, I mean, you're right in like national forest, uh, right. You're kind of surrounded by lots of public land, lots of is hunting probably just as popular as anywhere out there, hunting, fishing, both of them equally. Exactly. Once you get out of Dillon and you, and you travel South or West, there's really things you can drive until you hit that. Yeah. Nice. Well, this is going to be good. And if people are coming, I'm just looking again, if, you know, you're, you're just, uh, I mean, you're right on the tip. I mean, you're, you're kind of right in the middle of it again. That's why I always feel like Montana's right in the middle. You got Idaho just below, you got, you know, you're right next to Wyoming with everything there. How far is it down to, um, heading down, like just into the, like the Madison, you said about an hour. Madison. Yeah. Madison lies east of us about an hour, uh, to the town of Ennis. Okay. Well, let, let's take it back in. I want to go back into some of the, uh, since we started the Beaverhead, I want to kind of take it back there and talk again about the hatches. So we mentioned the the crane fly. Uh, just for in preparation, it sounds like the nine, you guys like the nine and a half foot uh, rod, six weight. Is that pretty much standard? Or do you usually, do you have some other rods where you're bringing like a dry fly rod, that sort of thing? Yeah, if I have two rods with Beaverhead, I would have the nine and a half foot, six weight for streamer fishing and or primarily nymph fishing as well as a nine foot five weight will kind of cover all the other situations you'll come across whether it be you know small technical dry fly fishing or throwing more of an attractor hopper or crane fly type pattern okay and then and then on rod i know you have the the shop there so you probably have a lot of different you know manufacturers Um, maybe take us into the shop real quick so for somebody who hasn't been uh in you know frontier anglers you walk in the front door take us there what's that look like 
I'd say we're on the, the, the large side of a, of a small destination fly shop. We've got a pretty comprehensive tying room. Uh, we, you know, we have everything from clothing to terminal tackle, uh, you know, hundreds of bins, the flies, uh, we're fairly all conclude all inclusive. You know, we, we offer a shuttle service on the Beaverhead river as well. So, uh, you know, we're pretty proud of what we have to offer. We don't think we're missing out on too much. Gotcha. And how's the shuttle service work? So that's just something you guys are running there. If somebody needs a shuttle, you have uh, people that are kind of running that for you? Exactly. You have, you know, folks will come in and, you know, we're on boat and they stop in, they fill out a sheet and uh, we'll take care of the shuttle for them. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, who puts together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that bucket list trip of a lifetime. And these aren't your typical lodge style trips or DIY in it. This is basically floating down the river in remote Alaska with the rainbows, the bears, and all the critters out there, but getting the luxurious uh, comforts of camping with tents and cots and good food and all that stuff. We've had Adam on in a number of episodes here and, uh, and actually just give away a big trip uh, this year up to Alaska. So he's been doing some good stuff. Adam and the crew have done a great job. We were on a trip with them down on this, uh, this remote section. We had the Northern Lights uh, one night. We had um, beautiful floating down the river. We had white water, uh, good food, big campfires, uh, you name it. Got some nice big rainbows, got some coho. It was just an epic all-around trip, and it definitely was a trip of a lifetime. You can head over right now if you want to check this out, wetflyswing.com slash fishhound and check in with Adam and pick his brain to see what kind of trips they have on the list. I know they're filling up quick, so if you want to get in there for this next year, uh, check out Fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-T, to connect with Adam and the crew over at Fishhound. And you support this podcast by clicking through that link and, uh, and checking in with the crew. Okay, back to the show. So at the, at the shop, uh, so you can tie fly. When you go in there, do you guys do like some, like if people want to do like the classes, do you guys do the flight tying stuff or is it more just get the gear, the materials? Yeah, we mentioned that, you know, COVID kind of slowed us down. We had big plans to do, you know, a couple nights a week, a uh, tying course. And we're going to maybe ramp that back up in January this year and offer uh, an introductory fly tying course as well, well as maybe another night for maybe folks who are a little more advanced and just want to, you know, reach out and, you know. Okay. You know, the fly shop, we've heard this before too about, you know, folks that buy or own fly shops and they kind of get stuck a little bit sometimes, you know, in the shop or they feel like that. Do you feel like uh, sometimes you're stuck in the shop or are you kind of getting out quite a bit still on the water? Actually, I'm lucky that I've got a great shop, great shop manager, Steve Wilson. Steve is in the shop more than I am. Um, I'm, I'm 52 years old, and I really prefer to be on the river more. Um, I'm in there. I'm in there some. I'll probably be in there when time goes on. But I, yeah, I know the phenomena you're speaking of, and I've, I've as the, the shop, and they grew a little bitter. I'm trying to keep the right blend to keep myself happy and keep myself in tune with what's going on on the river, and uh, yet still try to make sure that the shop is running smoothly. That's right. So you mix a little, and of course, Steve, Steve Wilson. Yeah, he's. Uh, we're. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode we did. Um, and Steve came from uh, over. Uh, what was the place before he worked uh, there? What, where was he at? He was uh, with Sweetwater Fly Shop and over in Livingston prior to coming here to Frontier Anglers. That's right. 
That's right, over in Livingston. In Livingston, that's that, and that's we had an episode with Steve, and we dug into some of the some of what they have going there, which is pretty unique. Um, so that's good. So you picked up Steve, and now Steve, he is at Frontier. Talk about him. What, what's his focus? Uh, is he mainly? Is he doing a little bit of everything? Yeah, Steve. Not only coordinating my other employees, everything tied together is I'm on the water quite a bit still, and uh, we're as a team and uh, I'm real fortunate to come across Steve and have him with me. God, that's, that is really great. Yeah. So you've picked up somebody who's got a ton of experience and do you feel like you could just, uh, you know, with Steve kind of, it's one of those things, right? Could you leave, you know, leave the shop for like a month or two and just be gone and be like, all right, Steve, is, is it at that point where he's just going to take care of things? Yeah. Someday, hopefully, you know, I, that the fantasy of leaving for a month or two could happen, but, uh, yeah, I, I was gone last week actually, uh, you know, hunting. And so I don't have a, the slightest worry that things aren't in good hands when Steve's there. God, that's, that's really great. Yeah. It's a good feeling to have that. What, what, uh, so hunting wise, let's go down this track just for a sec. Uh, where were you? Uh, is this like uh, deer elk? Yes. I was actually guy elk hunt over in, uh, and South of Bozeman on, uh, the flying D ranch. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Fine D. There you go. How, how was that? Is, uh, elk numbers are pretty good out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the premier places really to go elk hunting out West. Uh, you know, I had to, I was fortunate enough to be there for about 15 years doing it. And it's really a pretty amazing place. Oh man. And is this uh, like bow hunting or rifle? This was during the rifle season. Yeah. Rifle. Gotcha. Nice. So you got, yeah. So you've got a little bit of hunting. What, what else? So let's just uh, circle around on you, you know, so you've got the, the hunting, basically you're, it's hunting season now, obviously. So I know I have Tyler, shout out to Tyler. He's, he's out, uh, just North of you there. And I know he's spending like the next 10 days out his, his camp. Um, I mean, it seems like that's the place, right? I mean, people are, you think it's like equal hunting fishing out there. Is that what it feel? Or is it still a little more fisherman? Uh, what's your take there? You know, uh, Southwest Montana for where we're at for a long time has had some of the largest elk populations out West. And so we get a tremendous, you know, it's part of our culture here that virtually everybody hunts and it's a, it's a big draw for people, not only residents elsewhere in Montana, but from out of state to come here as well. Yeah. Gosh. So, so it is, I mean, and, and out of state, is that pretty, if somebody wanted to get an out of state, uh, license tag, that seems to be pretty doable. I know in some areas it's hard to even get an elk tag, right? Or even a, sometimes a deer tag. Is it pretty, uh, cause it's Montana, still lots of animals around. Yeah. Montana is great. We've got some of the best habitat in North America and it's been managed well for a long time. And, uh, you know, actually compared to even when I was a kid, there's a lot more elk now than there was then. Oh, wow. That's the, that's a good thing. And, and that is to, how do you, you attribute that to what, what just, uh, just natural fluctuations or what's going on there? No one knows for sure, but somewhere uh, around 1993, the elk numbers weren't that high and there were a lot of mule deer. Uh, there was a winter, in the winter of 93, the mule deer population was hit pretty hard uh, by winter kill. And from that point on, uh, elk numbers just really exploded in this part of Montana and have remained at levels that they'd actually like to have a few less elk out there, to be honest oh, with wow. you. They're, the numbers are above yeah. Holy cow. So, so if somebody wanted to get an elk tag from out of state, um, is that pretty doable or what have you ever, are people coming in? Is that pretty common? People are coming in from out of state. Yeah. They, what you need to do is I believe the deadline is usually March 15th. They need to apply with the fish, wife and parks. And, uh, you know, they're typically some people don't, but I think the odds are better or not. You'll get a tag. You may not get them two consecutive years, or you may not get it the first year, but if you apply for two years, you're, you're very likely to get one. Hmm. Okay. So, so there you go. So get that. And then, and then you're actually out there. Is it the, the flying D ranch? You're out there, uh, kind of 
basically guiding on hunts as well? Yeah, I have done that for quite some time. I'm, I'm kind of reaching the end of my career on doing that. In fact, last week was my last hunt there. Um, it's been a great chapter in my life, you know, uh, elk out west and meet some great people. And uh, the ranch itself, you'll probably spawn than you would driving around Yellowstone Park for sure. Mm. How does that look when you look at hunting, uh, guiding for hunting versus guiding for fishing? I mean, is it just very similar or very different? Get, describe that, the difference between the two for you. I think the two, the, where they coincide is you're always trying to manage expectations and personalities, whether you, you can't control how the fish are biting or where the elk are going to be standing. Um, but you can certainly try to keep your client in a, in a positive state of mind and with a positive attitude. And that translates to success, I think, both fishing and or hunting. Okay. And when, when you're coming in for the fishing trip, say I'm coming in there, you know, next in the summertime or getting ready before the trip, what do you tell me to manage my expectations on, on the trip or how does that look? You know, there's, uh, you know, we're pretty fortunate to have some pretty consistent fishing here. Uh, but you know, things happen, you know, uh, let's say hypothetically, you've got one day and on that day, they decided they're going to raise the level of the water out of the dam and you may have some great fishing for a while and then it might slow it down. So there's a variety of factors you can't control. At Frontier Anglers, we try to just control what we can, you know, we provide our own lunches. We make in-house at the shop. Uh, we have, you know, reputable quality experience, knowledgeable guide. And, you know, so we're going to, we're always going to control what we can. We sometimes can't control the hand that mother nature deals us, but, uh, you know, certainly the vast majority of the time there's, there's tremendous opportunity to have a good, a good deal. Yeah. And are you guys on these float trips? Uh, if you're doing like a day trip, are you guys stopping, uh, kind of breaking for a lunch, you know, hopping out on a gravel bar, uh, you know, kind of, uh, what, what's that look like for lunch? Just take, takes it that a little bit. Yeah, the B, uh, you know, is, is a river. Where we do a lot of float fishing, but there's certainly a tremendous amount of opportunity and we'll taper to the preference of our clients, but there's a tremendous opportunity to, if you wanted to, you could spend half the day out of the boat fishing, wade fishing as, and as well as float fishing. And we get folks preferences go either way and we just taper to what they'd like to do. But we'll typically, you know, uh, the beaverhead doesn't have a wide flood plain, so we'll usually eat a, you know, a really good lunch in the boat and and take off fishing again from there. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and I say that because it's kind of funny. We had uh, Henry Winkler on, you know, the fawns back in a, a while back earlier this year, and we, we were talking about he floats, I think, around a river south of you, and he we were talking about the experience there, and he was saying he he loves everything, but when they come to lunchtime, you know, he doesn't even want to stop and eat lunch. He just wants to be like, you know what, I don't want to stop fishing, and, and he almost gets a little angry, right? So, so there's probably some people that don't even need to eat. Is that do you guys probably see that sometimes too, where you just you just kind of keep fishing, maybe take a shorter break there everything from the guy who will eat a sandwich in about 35 seconds and jump out of the boat and start casting to folks who would actually prefer to have a table set up and take their own sweet time and you've almost got to tell them that lunch is over and we need to start fishing again and everything in between so i've, I've experienced uh, people on all ends of it that's it and then and then back into the hunting so managing expectations what are you telling an elk hunter who's coming in for the first time for for elk 
You know, uh, fortunately, the opportunities there where I guided uh, on the Flying D were, you know, numerous. Um, you're not going to really see more bull elk than in, you know, any place. You might see more bull elk in a day hunting there than you would in two seasons on public land. So they'd manage the elk there. It's a, a large ranch of about 120,000 acres. And so uh, they had the elk stay there generally all four seasons of the year. They're not, they don't migrate in or out. And so uh, we primarily are just harvesting mature, we're harvesting mature bulls there, which, uh, you know, their elk are kind of in the sunset of their life, nine, 10 years old. Um, and it's just, it's pretty amazing to see, to, to watch something that's been managed that well. And they're behaving like elk do just like they were an un- unhunted population almost. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so you're talking, I mean, it, you never say easy, you know, any of this stuff's easy, but I mean, this would be literally, I mean, you're with the guy, you're out there, you know where the animals are. I mean, how, how easy is it for somebody who can shoot straight to get an animal out there on these trips? Uh, yeah, they're going to get an opportunity. You know, there's, there's no guarantee. Certainly things can go wrong, but uh, they're going to get an opportunity for sure. Yeah, they're going to get a shot. And uh, I mean, that's a huge thing because you know, and I'm not sure what costs are for doing that, but I mean, yeah, there's some of these areas where you can go out elk hunting and might not see an elk, you know, for not only a year, but years, you know, that's a big struggle. So if you really want to get one, I mean, it sounds like the flying D might be a good place if you really want to get that elk to check, check in with them. Yeah. If it's one of your life ambitions to kill a, a, a mature bull elk, that's one of the better places there are. Perfect. All right. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've gone off on the hunting. I always love uh, chatting a little about the hunting and I hope to get out to Montana and do some of that as well, but, but taking it back to the rivers, you guys are going to be there. Um, you know, I guess we're kind of, like we said, going into November now, uh, but next summer you guys are going to be full service open, uh, between now and then do you guys have some trips coming up, uh, that you're going to be heading out like hosted style trips? Yeah, we do. Uh, I'm actually, uh, we're, we're hosting three trips to uh, Boutique Lodge in, uh, on Ambergris Cay in Belize in, uh, for the first three weeks of March uh, through the shop. And we're working on some folks to put together a trip to the Bahamas as well uh, in February. Oh, in Feb. Yep. Perfect. Yeah, so February. So if somebody wanted to get involved in either those trips or others, just uh, check in with you there and give you a call at the, at the shop. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're doing some stuff in Argentina, as I mentioned. I've uh, spent a long, lot of time there. So I... Uh, yeah, we're going to we will only expand upon that in the future. Gotcha. Uh, Steve, my shop manager, his background also uh, it was in the travel business, and so uh, between the two of us, we uh, we can provide a lot of uh, you know expertise and having been there, knowledge. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Steve is definitely a great resource on that too. So, are you guys going to be expanding that as you go, trying to do more? I mean, is there some limit to the programs uh, that you guys will be doing, or how does how does that look? Not really. We hope to just continue to build that over time. Uh, we have another trip going to the Aleutian Peninsula for king salmon in July of next year as well. So we're just branching out. And, you know, uh, you know Steve and I haven't been fished around the world quite a bit. Uh, we, you know, we have some places that we can promote to people and they trust us and uh, uh, people seem to be enjoying it. And we hope on that going forward. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, and I'm, I'm assuming that Aleutian, that's going to be like swinging. Is that like swinging for kings out, up there? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, you know, I narrowed it down to that's maybe the best place to go swing for King salmon in Alaska. And we were fortunate to get a week there and uh, looking real forward to it. You know, uh, it's those things are powerhouse uh, and it's absolutely in the middle of nowhere, you know, well down the Aleutian Peninsula on the scene, which may be better known as a steelhead river and one of the more consistent steelhead rivers left on the planet. But uh, we'll be there during King season. And I hope to see them again uh, one of the next few Septembers for some steelhead as well. Oh, right, right. And, and when's the time? So what's the best time for the swinging for Chinook down there? 
You know, uh, typically it's from, you know, going to be somewhere in the, you know, the 20th of June to the 1st of July, you know, anadromous fish being anadromous fish, there's a hard line on that, but in that proximity or a week before or a week after. Gotcha. Yeah. It's a, we're, we're talking about doing the same thing, uh, next, uh, next year, probably July, early July, trying to get up and hit not only Kings, but, uh, you know, everything up a little further North, uh, quite a bit, but, uh, yeah, it's Alaska, right? So there's, it's a diversity. You guys probably have a shot to get other fish. I mean, when you go out on a trip yeah. like that, are you thinking Kings is, is the sole focus? It's the primary focus of the operation there is on the Kings and you're catching them relatively close to the salt. You know, they're chrome bright. They're just absolutely powerful. Um, I came across the the place and uh, talked to Dave Himes, uh, who's here in Helena and booked it. And uh, that was the primary objective of my client who is, uh, you know, bringing his, his group along on the trip and I'll be hosting. Uh, and so looking real forward to it. It's, uh, you know, it's a ways out here still, but as we get closer, you know, I'm going to start to get even more into it. Perfect. All right, Sean. Well, I, I'm going to let uh, everybody get out of here. Uh, we're going to send everybody out to FrontierAnglers.com uh, if they want to connect with you on a, on a trip here and some stuff you have going. And yeah, thanks for get, uh, doing a little primer on the area. I think uh, definitely I know what to expect a little bit about the on the beaver head and some of those waters. And yeah, hopefully we can, we can get up there and uh, connect with you here in the next uh, couple of years or so. So thanks for all your time today. We'd love to have you, Dave. For sure. Make it our way. So there you are wetflyswing.com slash 385 385 we are 15 episodes away from the big four zero which is going to be amazing 400 episodes i can't even uh can't even do the math anymore it's been it's been awesome i appreciate you for uh you know if you're brand new today or if you've been a long time listener i appreciate the listens and appreciate the support Quick reminder before we get out of here, I mentioned this at the start, we've got an account manager position right now that's open. And so if you know somebody who is interested in engaging our sponsors, the community, uh, everything we have going, and also has experience in uh, event planning and might want to go on a few of these trips we have going in 2023 and beyond, this is the trip for you, for them. We've got some good stuff going, so excited to share this. We need some more help here at Team Swing, so we're looking for somebody right now. Uh, wetflyswing.com slash manager will get you the full scoop on that, and you could apply right there on that page, and uh, and it'll, it'll get you going. All right, uh, so, and I'd love to hear from you. If you are interested in getting out on one of those trips coming up here or just want to connect with me, you can send me a message, Dave, at wetflyswing.com. Or on social media anytime. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to put together an episode for you. Um, the more emails I get, the more connections, the more chance I have to direct this podcast and make it a fit perfectly for you. All right. Thanks for all your support. Thanks again for checking in today. And I hope you have a great evening, a great morning, or great afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And I really want to see you on that next episode. All right. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.